training for the reading of Scripture this morning. While we're going to return to Psalm 86, I actually want to read this morning uh, the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 17, verses 1 through 9, which is Matthew's account of the transfiguration. Let us hear and attend to the Word of God, the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And we'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated, and if you would, turn back in your Bibles to Psalm 86. Throughout Christian church history, the transfiguration of Jesus has been acknowledged as a stupendous event for Christian faith. However, there is no uniform practice of celebration like there is for Christmas or for Easter. Now, some branches of the visible church have varying traditions of designated feasts, and sad to say, some have embraced and developed superstitions of false mysticism associated with Jesus' transfiguration. So we are to take care over how the transfiguration of Jesus is theologically viewed. Uh, I thought it was interesting, and I've given you an example of the Wikipedia entry, that, you know, fine source of, <laughs> of theological information. But the Wikipedia entry on the transfiguration of Jesus, which says it was a miracle that happened to Jesus, and then it's the point when human nature meets God, and that's repeated twice in the article. But these comments are not biblically truthful about the meaning of the transfiguration, and therefore they're misleading. So this morning I want us to look at Psalm 86 in connection with the transfiguration as a communion meditation. We have the, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper before us this morning in the, the cup and the bread, and we turn to the Scriptures to identify and to tell us more about this wonderful mystery of the promise uh, that Peter says is a promise more sure than even the witness that he was to the transfiguration. Now, I want to tell you that neither this Psalm 86 nor any other psalm are explicitly linked to the event of the transfiguration. Sometimes we do have uh, Scripture references that are spoken of or that are uh, referenced in the context of Jesus' earthly ministry. We've, we've seen some of that in the Gospel of Mark. But the uh, Psalm 86, nor any other psalm, is explicitly quoted or referenced in the context of the, the transfiguration. But I want you to remember the authoritative counsel of the resurrected Jesus appearing to the disciples on the Emmaus Road. You remember that. And this is what Jesus said to them. O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and entered into his glory? Now he's references, referencing this to the glory 
that is being revealed in the person of the Lord Jesus. And then he says, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then also the resurrected Jesus appeared to his apostles in the upper room. And he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. So that's the warrant that I am taking to go to this psalm. And though it is not explicitly linked uh, to the transfiguration by reference, there is in this psalm the revealing of Christ, the Messiah, to us in, in ways that are borne out, uh, as we said, in a, in a magnificent, incomprehensible uh, event of the transfiguration. Now, one of the most validating witnesses for uh, this transfiguration and the warrant for uh, having the scriptures connected to who Christ is, his person and work, comes from the Apostle Peter himself. As we mentioned, he was present at the transfiguration, and we read that, of course, in the, in the scriptural account. And this is what the Apostle, Paul, uh, the Apostle Peter wrote. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure the prophetic word to which you do well to pay attention. Now, note the analogies that, Paul, uh, that Peter uses here as they connect with the description of the transfiguration, that Jesus was shining bright, that light was bursting through him, that it was like glory and light that was emanating from him, that it was whiter than any bleach uh, uh, of uh, any uh, launderer could make, this shining uh, aurora of the glory of God. And, and what does... Peter say we have a more sure word to us. The prophetic word of Scripture is even more sure, more certain than what he says I witnessed in the transfiguration. And then how does he describe the word of God to us? He says it's like a lamp shining in a dark place. Like Jesus, the light of the world, shining in a dark place on the Mount of Transfiguration. Until the day dawns. And remember in the prophetic announcement of the birth of Jesus... That uh, John the Baptist's father, the priest Zacchaeus, the, the priest Zechariah, said that um, the day star would arise, the, the, the day dawns, and the morning star rises in your hearts, Peter says, because Jesus is the light of the world. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For prophecy was never produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Warranting and authorizing for us, even more valid than the experience that Peter had at the transfiguration, is the word of God that interprets that event as God's glory manifest in his Son in whom he is well pleased. So why should we reference Psalm 86 as a communion meditation celebrating the transfiguration of Jesus? And this is something I want you to, to get specifically. I mean, we could say, of course, that we, we find... Uh, the Lord Jesus and the promises and the meaning uh, of who He is throughout Scripture. 
But specifically, what about this psalm is it? Well, I mentioned to you already this morning that part of the sacred text of this scripture is the title that is given. A prayer of David. That, that is part of the original text, of the inspired text. It's labeled for us, it's titled for us, A Prayer of David. And so here's the theological connection of this psalm with the transfiguration of Jesus as the Christ. It's that biblically authorized prayer is a means of grace mediated by Jesus Christ. Now what does that mean for this psalm? What does that mean for David who wrote this psalm? A psalm of David. As David was carried along, Peter says, by the Holy Spirit, not giving us a private interpretation, not giving us his moody feelings about seeking after God, but rather David was an inspired author born along by the Holy Spirit of God to give us God's revealed truth in Holy Scripture about prayer. What does this prayer of David mean? What does it have connection about Jesus as the Messiah or the Christ? Well, that's what we want to look at this morning. In verses 1 through 7 of this psalm, Bow down your ear, O Lord, hear me, for I am poor and needy. David describes himself in an attitude of prayer of begging God, and that's what prayer is. It's begging God. Preserve my life, for I am holy. This uh, holy, uh, this um, godly here has a, has a covenantal connection. You are my God. Save your servant who trusts in you. Be merciful to me, O God. Now I want you to pay attention to his calling upon uh, the Lord to preserve him, to be merciful to him in his love, his covenant trust and love for him. I cry to you all day long. Rejoice the soul of your servant. For to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Uh, prayer is a means of grace. is communion with God in connection with the divine in the way that he has ordained and, and the way in which he will affect, as we say, is more real by faith than it is to our intellect or to our emotion. We don't validate prayer by how emotional we are. We don't validate uh, prayer by being intellectual. And it's not to say that we don't have emotion. This is a very emotional psalm. It's not to say that we don't have an intellectual grasp with understanding of the things that David identifies here that he's praying for. But it is in connection with these things that faith is brought to bear on the promise of God's communing and connecting with us. Verse 5, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer and attend to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble I will call upon you, for you will answer me. Now, uh, hopefully it goes without saying, David doesn't say you'll give me what I want. David doesn't say you'll answer me according to what I want you to do. What has David said in the previous verses? I am a servant. I am humble before you. I am seeking your will. I am trusting you. I know you will answer me. It's a foregone conclusion. You will answer my prayer. It may not be the way I'm expecting. It may not be in, in what I'm hoping but I am submitted to you. Prayer is begging submission to Almighty God. Uh, David uses the names of God in this prayer. Elohim, uh, Yahweh, Adonai. He repeats them. Seven times he uses the, the name of God Adonai in reference to his sovereign master. This is a psalm prayed in submission to knowing God as God the Creator, 
to trusting His covenant relationship with God, that God condescended, that God fulfills His promises, but ultimately in repeated submission to the sovereignty of His Lord, who will do what is right and good and best. And that's hard to swallow sometimes. But this is the prayer that David is praying. He tells us that this gives meaning, I believe, to our understanding of the transfiguration. What was the means of the transfiguration? If you happen to pick up on that, when we read it in uh, Matthew chapter 17 this morning, Jesus said, tell the vision to no one until after my resurrection. So the means of the transfiguration was in an apocalyptic vision. It was not a miracle that happened to Jesus. Do you remember in Revelation 1 what we're told there? It's the revelation, it is the apocalypse, the revealing of the glory of the resurrected Christ. If you don't get that from the very beginning about the book of Revelation, you miss everything. (laughs) It's an apocalyptic vision. Because we are not bound to this world and the church is not bound in this world. We get very earthly minded and our vision gets tunnel vision on the earth. And yet we're to look up and we are to envision from what has been revealed, an apocalyptic vision, we are to see Jesus as the glorified, resurrected Christ. That was what the transfiguration was in preview. It was an apocalyptic vision. And Peter, James, and John were transferred into the spiritual realm of reality. And there they met Moses and Elijah. I don't know how they knew that it was Moses and Elijah. I don't know if they were introduced to them, but there was some interaction going on and we're told that they recognized Moses and Elijah in the spiritual realm of reality. Do you understand that's more real than where you and I are right now? It's hard to grasp that, isn't it? In faith, the spiritual realm is an existence that is more real than what you and I are experiencing right now. And that's what we're called by faith, and that's why we have this preview, and then later the, the fuller apocalyptic revelation of Jesus as the glorified, resurrected Savior. And so David here in verse 2 says that he identifies himself as one who is holy or godly. And, and this word connects to the bond of covenant. It's the same word that's translated elsewhere in, in Psalm 8, for example, as loyal. It speaks of a steadfast response to the steadfast love of God. And here's a a statement from the Westminster Confession that I think about often and I dearly embrace. The distance between God as the Creator, the distance between Elohim and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto Him as their Creator, yet they could never have any fruition of Him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension, coming down, voluntarily making himself known, seeking us, voluntary condescension on God Elohim's part, God the Creator's part. He initiates it. He does it. Which he has been pleased to express. How does he do it? By way of covenant. And that's why David uses the name of God, Lord Yahweh, covenant God, the self-revealing and promise-making, covenant-keeping God. In this psalm, he's praying in relationship to Him, not in terms of of the, the power of the Creator only, Elohim, 
but one who is personally known and has come into covenant union, who has received David and has revealed himself to David as his covenant Lord, as his promise-keeping God. So the sanctified prayers of believers are mediated by means of transferring through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to the heavenly intercession of Jesus Christ. That's why I read those two passages from Romans and from Hebrews in our statement of forgiveness this morning. What is, what is the Holy Spirit's intercession according to the will of God with groans that we can't even sometimes put into words? What does Jesus promise of heavenly intercession as our great high priest in heaven better than all the earthly priests who didn't continue because they died that were symbolic and representative but effectual in their ministry according to God's means? But all made fulfilled and all made effectual by the one who is in heaven. Those passages tell us that we can be assured of our sins forgiven because the Holy Spirit bears out the grief of our sorrow over sin and the Lord Jesus carries them into the presence of the Father having been purified of all impurities. He is our great high priest mediating for us in the presence of God, interceding. And therefore, we have audience with God. We have acceptance and we have the Holy Spirit bearing out the witness that we are received in the Beloved One. We're clothed in His righteousness. We are invited in, not to just the holy place, but into the very presence of the holiness of ho the Holy of Holies in heaven, born there in the presence of Jesus in our union with Him. This is a great and wonderful mystery, but it works its way out in our life of faith as we pray. And the means of the transfiguration connects with David's prayer here because in the reality of the apocalyptic revelation of what's going on beyond what our eyes can see, in that reality, Jesus intercedes for us. Who was interceding this prayer for David? We'll have more to say about that in a moment. So that brings us to verses 8 through 10. O Lord God of hosts, again, the names and the appellations that are uh, uh, t telling us about who God is as uh, um, Yahweh, uh, Elohim, uh, Adonai. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty like you, O Lord, your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. I'm sorry, I'm on a... I'm sorry, <laughs> I was in a different psalm, my, my bad. Uh, let's see, let's go back to Psalm 86, verses 8 through 10. I got off on a different psalm. Okay, verse 8 of Psalm 86. Among the gods, now this is the same word Elohim, but it's being, it's being used in reference to power beings that are of God's creation. Not to polytheism, there are not other gods, but there are other powerful creatures. And so uh, David is writing, he said, look, among the other powerful creatures, there is none like you. You stand apart. You are different. You are uncreated. You are Adonai. You are the sovereign master. They are not. You are master over them. They are not rivals to God. Even Satan is not a rival to God. Nor are there any works like your works. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great. And do wondrous things. You alone are God. 
So from the means of the apocalyptic vision of the transfiguration, showing us a reality, a reality that was true for David and his prayers, how these, this prayer, this Psalm 86, was, was uh, interpreted, was uh, uh, supplicated, was interceded and mediated in heaven. We move to verses 8 through 9, and again we learn from the transfiguration the meaning What does the transfiguration tell us about the meaning of this psalm and the meaning of our prayers? It tells us that Jesus is the God-man. He's not a lesser God. He's not a spirit being or an angel. When David writes and says, among the gods, among the spirit beings, among the powerful beings, he is referencing here that the um, Messiah, the anointed Yahweh, the anointed Adonai, the one who hears his prayers and intercedes his prayers, is not a spirit being. David is not praying to an angel. David is not praying to some uh, spirit power. I get really upset with those who want to try to limit the Old Testament believers as to not having consciousness and uh, awareness by the witness of the Holy Spirit to whom they were praying and to the need for a mediator and to the anointed one. No, they didn't see and know the, the, the extent of the incarnation and the person of the Lord Jesus himself. But I'm convinced that by the Holy Spirit that they expected that. And they knew it was necessary. Just like you and I, and I, I mentioned this, what, Paul, uh, what Peter writes. We love Jesus whom we have not seen. The same criticisms are leveled against us for believing in someone we have not seen. They question even his histocracy. We take the Bible as being authoritative because it is the word of God and not the word of men. It has been carried to us from men of God and it has been preserved by us in the visible church as a custodian for the treasures of the word of God providentially. You can't prove that. We can look at all manner of text and text history for the Old Testament and for the New Testament. But it is by faith that we accept this. Unbelievers reject that. Just like there are those who want to say that the the Old Testament was cultic and they didn't really know who they were talking about. They had this vague concept of who God was in terms of a monotheistic, one only God. I say that's rubbish. We're turning back to these scriptures, scriptures that are authorized for us, that are even interpreted and given us interpretive keys for from Jesus and his fulfillment as the Messiah and the application that we have through the New Testament doctrinal writings as well as the historical writings. And we say, this is who Jesus is. And the meaning of the transfiguration is that Jesus is the God-man. He's not a lesser God. He's not an angelic being. And so in verse 8, as David says, among the gods, then in verse 10 he says, you alone are God. So Jesus is not a created being. The second person of the Holy Trinity, God the triune one, is set apart as God alone. So throughout this psalm, the exclusiveness and the names of God are repeated. I've already mentioned to you how the names of God are repeated here and used. And here is something I want you to understand about this psalm as a prayer and is it connecting with the transfiguration, that David needed a mediator. David did not have direct access to, to Creator God on his own terms. David needed a mediator. All sinners need a mediator. All sinners have only one hope of a mediator. And that one is Jesus Christ only. Now, before the incarnation, that creates for us some uh, stretching 
of our thoughts. Because before the incarnation, before the human nature of the man Jesus existed, and you need to understand that, the human nature of the man Jesus did not exist eternally. The second person of the Holy Trinity, the Son of God, is eternally begotten. He exists eternally with the Father. He is neither created nor is He subordinate to, in His nature, God the Father. And so, in terms of the intercession that David is here in need of, before the incarnation, who was interceding for the saints of God? But the covenant Lord and the messenger of the covenant who is the second person of the Holy Trinity. He is the mediator of the covenant of grace administered through the Holy Spirit's attending the Old Testament and its covenant signs and seals as a means of grace, previewing and preparing for the new covenant fulfillment. That's why the the new covenant is celebrated. That's why the transfiguration gives us a preview of the resurrection glory because something changed on earth earth and in heaven with the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that is the glorified human nature of the man Jesus ascending into heaven in connection with the second person of the Holy Trinity that human nature did not exist before the incarnation now does that stretch you in faith to seek to understand that it stretches me it stretches me with great wonder and it also propels me into the reality of what Scripture says, that there is a reality that exists beyond the time and limitations that we have in this world, in this created world. There is a a realm of spiritual reality. And God is not confused or limited by that or by our weak faith or our little understanding of the ways of God. And so the meaning of the transfiguration isn't that it was a miracle that happened to Jesus or it was the first time that uh, the divine came in contact with the human. That's false. The meaning of the transfiguration is that Jesus is the incarnate God and the divine glory of God burst through and shines through Him in a preview of the resurrection glory that is to come. And He, as the second person of the Holy Trinity, even before the incarnation, was the one mediating the covenant of grace as the messenger of the covenant, the eternally begotten Son of God. That brings us then to verses 11 through 15 of Psalm 86. Make sure I stay on the right page here. Verses 11 uh, through 15. Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will praise you, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your mercy toward me, and you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, the proud have risen against me, and a mob of violent men have sought my life and have not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth. So, In this part of David's psalm, of course, he's praying specifically in reference to God's faithfulness and the struggle and the violence of the fallen world and those who are in rebellion against God and that we must contend with in this world. But reflecting on the transfiguration, what David is praying for here is the very message of the transfiguration. Deliverance from the curse of death. You can see verse 13 
Great is your mercy toward me, and you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. The deliverance that David is praying for here is not just a temporal deliverance. He's praying for the deliverance of his soul. He's praying for the hope that is set before him in terms of this unstable fallen world and of God's saving it and delivering it. And it's interesting, if you would reference back to the uh, account of the transfiguration in the Gospel of Luke, that there we're told that Moses and Elijah communed with Jesus about the deliverance, about the decease, about the departure that he was going to accomplish at Jerusalem. And in the Greek text, the word there is the exodus. The exodus that he is going to accomplish at Jerusalem. David is here praying for that kind of deliverance. For that deliverance from Sheol. And that's not just the physical grave. He's talking about the realm of the dead. He's talking about in the afterlife. To be delivered and to be present with the Lord. And so, interestingly enough, in verse 15, in this context, the last part of verse 15 is a direct quote from the Pentateuch, from uh, Exodus 34, 6. You, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth. So, David is founded in the certainty of the promise of God for deliverance from the realm of the dead and separation from God. And he quotes back the promise of God as Yahweh, the covenant-keeping, self-revealing, self-existing God. And that's who Jesus is, you see. The meaning of the transfiguration is Jesus is the God-man. The message of the transfiguration is that there is deliverance from the curse of death because of who Jesus is. And the means that was given of the transfiguration is a preview to us of an apocalyptic vision into the realm of the eternal reality that we can't see with our eyes. That brings us then to the last part of this psalm. Before we do, though, let me point out this application. The Bible reveals the theological curse of death as more than physical. Indeed, physical death is the irrepressible witness to original sin. The transfiguration previews the resurrection of Jesus as more than someone returning from physical death. Have you thought of that before? I've tried to hint at it this morning. When we return to Mark chapter 9 next week, we'll be talking about this more specifically in the context of Mark chapter 9. But do you understand, do you have a glimmer of that, that the transfiguration previews for us that the resurrection of Jesus is about something more than someone returning from the dead? How do you understand that? How do you see that in connection with the preview of his glory and of who he is as our mediator and of being able to pray like this psalm? Psalm 86 is a prayer of David and a prayer for all believers. So that brings us then to the concluding uh, two verses, verses 16 and 17 of Psalm 86. Oh, turn to me and have mercy on me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign for good that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed because you, O oh Lord, have helped me and comforted me. So we'd all agree that the transfiguration is a mystery. It's meant to be a mystery. But remember, a mystery is something that God reveals that we couldn't otherwise know when we talk about divine mysteries. It's not something that we conjure up with human imagination. So the mystery of the transfiguration 
is a sign of the Lord's strong presence to help and comfort through the promised seed of the woman. Isn't that part of the mystery? We say the sacrament, the mystery of the Lord's Supper. That being revealed to us, how the Lord is present with us, how He helps and comforts us as being the seed of the woman, the promised seed of the woman, as the God-man. We don't see Jesus now. Jesus is glorified in His human nature. He's glorified, resurrected, and ascended into heaven in that great mystery and wonder of something that didn't exist in heaven previously. And He's there, we're told, to intercede for us according to the will of God. He is directing and overruling. He is our Lord. He is our sovereign. He is overruling all things for the care and the benefit and the uh, victory of His church in His ways and according to what He says in the spiritual realm is reality and important, not necessarily what we often look to. And so we're guided by Scripture and, and there is intercession and mediation of our prayers in terms of the mystery of the transfiguration. Here, David references himself as being the son of God's maidservant. Of course, that's an expression of humility and covenantal consciousness by faith. It's a, it's a term that's used in Scripture connected to the first gospel promise back in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman. And then it is hinted at in terms of the motifs of the barren wife and the virgin mother uh, in Scripture. And it comes to its fulfillment when the time was fulfilled. And Jesus coming, made of a woman, made under the law. And of course you know He had a true human nature, but no earthly father. He did not inherit the guilt of original sin, but the condition of original sin. And so as the God-man, He lived very much as we talk about His being able to substitute for us as a true human and being able to satisfy God as truly God. And so there's a mystery in the transfiguration in terms of what it previews for us. And I want you to understand that the transfiguration of Jesus as the Christ of God is recorded and preserved for Christian believers as a sign for good that all God's Word is true and sure. Going back to what Peter said that even though he witnessed the transfiguration, the whole counsel of Scripture of what God has given that is good, what God has preserved for us uh, in His mercy, of His truth, is that all the Word of God is sure and steadfast and certain for us. So that, you see, you and I can pray Psalm 86. We can pray it with understanding from the scope of Scripture and from what the transfiguration reveals to us regarding the glory of Christ, who He is, and that all our prayers are mediated by Him according to the will of God. So this Psalm 86, a prayer of David, was mediated in heaven for David as a believer in his life of faith by the second person of the Holy Trinity, the messenger of the covenant, the mediator. And it is for all believers across the generations in the fulfillment of the new covenant through the Lord Jesus Christ, what was previewed in the transfiguration, what was revealed to fuller meaning in the apocalypse, and what is in heaven for us as the ultimate and true reality is that we are mediated for by our heavenly intercessor who is the great high priest and king. And so we pray with the Spirit 
as the Scriptures tell us, sometimes even with groanings that we can't put into words. But the Holy Spirit makes intercession according to the will of God in that in union with the Holy Spirit and the eternal Son of God, our prayers are mediated for the will of God and for His glory. The, the transfiguration is described for us over and over about the glory of God. The glory of God bursting through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ because He is God. And you know, beloved, God says He is pleased to gather us in to His glory. We are serving God's glory in worshiping and in praying through the means of grace. We are enveloped we are transferred into the purpose of the glory of God. Peter, James, and John were transferred into the spiritual realm of vision, into the greater reality of the glory of God, and beheld the glory of God, the majesty of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And Peter says, Beloved, you're not losing out on anything. You have more now than we had then because you have the full scope of Scripture to tell you more and more about what it means. So we turn to this Psalm 86 and we employ that as a prayer, an inspired prayer from one of God's holy men born along by the Holy Spirit. But we recognize in it that that prayer for David and for all believers is interpreted and interceded and brought to the throne of grace with infallible assurance for what is good the glory of God. <laughs> How can we not think of the first catechism? What is the chief end of man? What is your main purpose, people? To glorify God and to fully enjoy Him forever. That's what this psalm is about. And that's what the transfiguration blast <laughs> to us. Like an explosion, like fireworks. I guess they're having all kind of fireworks for the Super Bowl and everything. Beloved, here are some fireworks from the Bible. Jesus bursting forth with the glory of God because He is God. So we come to worship Him and to receive His promise that He is more real to us, the spiritual realm of reality. He is more real to us by faith than this cup or this bread are to our physical senses. You've heard me say that many times. <laughs> 